Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikulskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. My guest is Joanna Schwartz. She is a professor of law at the University of California at Los Angeles. That would be UCLA for all of us sports fans. And she's out with a new book. It's called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. It is available everywhere. Joanna, what I liked about this is the news buzz, the buzzwords in the news over the last several years have been blue lives matter, black lives matter, defund the police, all these different things. You wade through all of this and focus on the civil litigation side of policing. So can you explain your general premise for the book? Because I think it's one that not a lot of people outside the legal community understand. Absolutely, and thanks for having me on. Uh, I really want people to understand when we want justice, when there has been police misconduct, what does justice look like? Um, and, and this is true whether or, not you, whether or not you believe that police misconduct occurs once in a blue moon or it happens every day. I think we can agree that there should be some justice when officers violate the Constitution and uh, violate people's rights. And what I argue in the book is that lawsuits are often the only available way of getting some sort of justice. Police officers are very rarely criminally prosecuted and rarely disciplined by their departments. And so when people have had their rights violated, often the only way to bring a case is through civil litigation. But what I show in the book is that the Supreme Court and state and local governments at every level have created so many protections for law enforcement and other government officials at every stage of the litigation process that officers are virtually untouchable in the system. I, as I read the book, I kept thinking about this and, and the way this has sort of evolved through the federal courts, because that's where the majority of these cases are filed, the vast majority of them, does it appear to be some type of design that some people in power at one time said, you know what, we're going to make the police untouchable, or did it just sort of happen through, uh, you know, organically? As I talk about in Shielded, the, the initial right to sue that, that is relied on in federal courts today is 150 years old uh, and was initially created out of a view that there needed to be federal court remedies for people wronged by uh, local governments, but also vigilante groups uh, in the years after the Civil War. But there has been a rise and fall in the strength of that power over time. And I think that government officials and courts and other public uh, figures have used the threat that, that there will be uh, no one willing to serve as a police officer, that frivolous lawsuits will fill the courts and bankrupt police uh, as justifications for limiting the right to sue, uh, first after the law was initially passed and then in the 1960s and again today. And I, I don't know whether the, uh, the people who raise these concerns truly believe them, but what I can tell you is that I've spent my academic career studying these justifications for limits on the right to sue, and I've found them to be overblown, if not downright false. There's this idea in the law, it's called qualified immunity, and you talk about it a lot in your book, and it's something that you point out the Supreme Court just created out of whole cloth, just made it up, and can you explain how that works and how it serves to limit these suits? Sure. 
So the Supreme Court first recognized that people could sue for constitutional violations in 1961, and it was six years after that, in 1967, that the Supreme Court first created qualified immunity. And it was not part of the Constitution or part of the law that, that allowed people to sue, uh, it, but the court created this protection. At the time, they called it a good faith immunity. So if an officer believed that they were following the law, but in fact they were violating it, that they should have some additional protection. But the Supreme Court has repeatedly strengthened the protections of qualified immunity, first in 1982 saying that an officer's intent, whether they acted in good faith, shouldn't matter. The only question should be whether an officer violated what the court called clearly established law. And then over the years, the court has defined what clearly established law means in more and more restrictive ways, so that today, officers are entitled to qualified immunity, even if they've violated the Constitution, so long as that person cannot find a prior court decision from the Supreme Court or a court of appeals that has held unconstitutional, virtually identical conduct. So not enough to say, here's another case where a person was not resisting. There needs to be a prior case where a person was demonstrating that they were not resisting in the precisely same way that the officer used the precisely same force against that person despite their lack of resistance. And doesn't that presuppose that police officers, when they're receiving their training, are poring over judicial opinions to see what they can and can't do? It absolutely does. And if you read the Supreme Court's opinions and you take them at their word that this is what they're concerned about, the Supreme Court talks about qualified immunity as, a, as necessary to put officers on notice that their conduct violates the Constitution. This is one of the justifications that I have studied empirically to try to understand whether the court uh, is thinking about the right things when it justifies the qualified immunity doctrine. And what I found, and maybe this would come as no surprise, but it's still valuable to actually prove it, officers are not educated about the facts and holdings of cases that clearly established the law for qualified immunity purposes. In California, there were hundreds of use of force cases that could be used to clearly establish the law for qualified immunity. Officers aren't trained about the facts and holdings of any of them. They're taught general principles about what force is reasonable, and then they get comfortable applying that general standard under the unending <laughs> number of kinds of circumstances that might uh, come their way. And so the, the doctrine, the defense, is so difficult in part because of a fiction uh, about the, the notion that officers would actually read and remember and recall those cases while doing their jobs. I'm chatting with Joanna Schwartz about her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. It is available everywhere, and I think it's a great read for understanding a lot of the issues that we see headlines about but probably don't know the details. Joanna, something else that stood out to me in the book is the the, the way that police are, are are trained and, you know, the cities train these, the governments train these that the police work for, and there's this idea that police are held accountable and it's going to bankrupt police officers you found that the reality of the situation is that most of the money that's ever paid out, if anything is ever paid out, doesn't come from the police officers themselves, right? 
That's correct. Uh, there are what are called indemnification agreements that local governments and sometimes are, are exist as a matter of state law that require that when officers are sued, that uh, defense attorneys are paid and any settlement or judgment is paid by the city. And so when I looked at settlements and judgments across 81 different cities over a six-year period, I found that officers only paid 0.02% of the dollars that were awarded to plaintiffs in those cases. And so 99.98% of those dollars came from taxpayers or from insurance money. You mentioned lawyers, and that's another section of your book, that the absolute dearth of lawyers who are willing to take these cases because of all that's involved. How does that play out as far as seeking justice for the, the bad acts of police? Yeah, one of the early chapters talks about the difficulty of finding a lawyer, and I think that uh, notion may come as a surprise uh, if you uh, listen to common conversation about lawyers, you might think that there are thousands of lawyers desperate to uh, chase ambulances to the scenes of uh, police misconduct and, and bring these cases. But the fact of the matter is, is quite different. Officers, or excuse me, lawyers are not paid in these cases unless plaintiffs win. And when they win, they really tend to receive just about a third or a portion of any judgment that the plaintiff receives. Because of qualified immunity and many other protections for officers, these cases are difficult to win and they're also expensive to bring. And so if a, if a person has not suffered extreme uh, damages from which a third would compensate the, the lawyer for their time and work on the case, the person is going to be unlikely to find a lawyer. And what I've found in my research is that in many places across the country, places that are not the big cities, civil rights attorneys who have experience in the area are few and far between. And so people who suffered egregious misconduct can be put in a position where they need to represent themselves. And it's very, very difficult because of qualified immunity and all of the other barriers to relief in these cases for a person without a lawyer to win. And the idea of qualified immunity is one that a judge makes, right? Uh, yes, usually uh, it, it can be. In some parts of the country, it's something that can be left for a jury to decide. But yes, it is uh, usually something that a judge decides and can dismiss a case either before or after discovery uh, because the law is not clearly established. And those of us in this area, the country, well, everywhere in the country knows about the Derek Chauvin situation up in in uh, Minnesota. But you pointed out in the book there was a big settlement in that case, or you know, a, a settlement nonetheless. But qualified immunity could have put a hamper on that had there not been this worldwide coverage of the incident, right? Absolutely, and I think that this is important to remember. We all have heard. Uh, George Floyd's name, and now Tyree Nichols' name, Breonna Taylor's name, and unfortunately the names of, of too many others whose lives have been ended by law enforcement, overreach, and misconduct. But those cases don't proceed the way that uh, most cases do. If there's not public attention that is focused laser-like on these cases, uh, 
these kinds of barriers like qualified immunity can arise. And so, yes, the case brought by the family of George Floyd settled for $27 million very quickly without any litigation, without any need to get past qualified immunity. But there have been multiple other cases around the country, including one that I tell in the book, where a person died in just the way that George Floyd did, with a knee to their neck or their back, and have had their cases dismissed on qualified immunity grounds because there's not a prior court case with similar enough facts. Real quick before I let you go, can qualified immunity be abrogated by statute? It can. So Congress, Congress could do away with qualified immunity across the country, uh, and they have considered that with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, although that uh, did not uh, end up getting enacted. States around the country are also doing something interesting. The state, state legislatures cannot do away with federal qualified immunity. But what some states, including Colorado, have done is create a state law cause of action, an ability to sue for violations of the state constitution, and have said that qualified immunity is not a defense in those cases. So there's really two workarounds, one through Congress and one through state legislatures. It's an amazingly complex subject, and you've put, made it so readable. The book is Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable by Joanna Schwartz. It's available everywhere. Pick up your copy wherever you buy books. Joanna, thanks for joining me to talk about this. Thanks so much for having me. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody.